If you'll turn with me in your scriptures to Luke chapter 21, we'll pick up where uh, Josh Squires left off last week, really one long discourse from Jesus that we'll pick back up on and explain uh, as we continue along. But as you turn there, we'll be in Luke 21, starting in verse 25, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. As we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and most holy heavenly Father, we praise you this evening for you are worthy of our praise. And we ask that as we open up your word, this very word that's breathed out by you, that it would do a work on us through the power of your Holy Spirit. That as we encounter you in it, we would be changed by you to become more like Christ. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand and receive your word and give me wisdom as I preach and use me as your vessel in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 25, let's give attention to God's word. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are coming to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thanks be to God for his holy and errant and therefore his authoritative word. My children read a, a, a book in their school called Stories for America. And in that book the author tells a story of a moment during the war of 1812. A moment when two men, Dr. Beans and Francis Scott Key, uh, came into a chaotic situation. Dr. Beans had been arrested by the British fleet off of the Chesapeake and he had been held hostage in one of their ships uh, for a crime that he didn't commit. And Francis Scott Key, being a lawyer, thought, if I can get on the ship, I can prove that he is innocent like any good lawyer would want to do. And so he makes his way out to this boat, he boards the ship, he argues Dr. Bean's case and the British uh, leadership agree that he was uh, falsely being held. And so they decide to let them go but the problem is that that very night the Brits had decided that they were going to bombard Fort McHenry which was a base guarding Baltimore. And so they couldn't let them go back because they were afraid that they might tell of what was going to happen and so instead they kept them there 
all night in the fort, you can imagine how anxious these two men were knowing that their people were about to be bombed, that their forts were about to be perhaps destroyed. And they paced the deck all night long, watching this fort, seeing what would happen as the rain came down, as the clouds covered the night sky, as the smoke filled from the guns shooting at this fort. They watched the fort and all they could see was the flag. They stared at that flag through the night as much as they could, sometime losing sight of it. But in the morning as they woke up, Francis Scott Key had scribbled on an envelope through the night, perhaps to keep his mind alert, perhaps to avoid the anxiety of the chaos. They woke up in the morning, they looked out to see if the base was still there. And as the smoke cleared and the clouds lifted, they saw the flag. The base had weathered the storm. The base had stood in the midst of the chaos of the night, that long night. And as these two men went back home, Francis Scott Key pulled that envelope out of his pocket and on it he had scribbled these words, Jose, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we held at the twilight's last gleaming? Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight over the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming? And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free, the home of the brave. And we could all rush the field and play the game now that that song has been sung. But you can imagine what a moment that was for these two men. Hoping in the midst of chaos, stressed and worried, watching through the chaos until finally the deliverance had arrived and the base had been saved. It's tempting as we come to a passage like this to come to a lecture on which stance you should take. Are you pre or post or amillennialist? Are you preterist? What position do you stand in? And if you want that lecture, type in Derek Thomas and you'll find it online. I'm sure, no doubt about it, it's there. I listened to it this week. It's fantastic. But this is a sermon on this text and it would be fitting to preach that way as well. But what I want to drive home this evening is the one point that I think Jesus is really driving home. And that is that the next great event in redemptive history is the second coming of Christ. And we need to live as if that's a reality. That Christ is driving home here that in the interadventual period, that that between the two advents of his first coming and his second coming, that there's a way in which we should live as if that second coming is really going to happen. How do we then live in light of that reality? We are to watch ourselves. We're to stay awake and we're to pray. And so I want us to look at three things according to this passage. The first is an appearing and then a parable And then an application. First here in appearing in verses 25 through 28. And if we're to understand this passage, we need to go back a little bit to last week. We are probably on Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus is working in and out of the temple. He comes there daily. You saw even at the end of this passage. And he preaches and teaches at the temple complex. And as he's come this last time, someone has said, this is an amazing temple complex. They're marveling at this temple. And rightly so, this was... Herod the Great's temple, his renovation of the second temple. It was a massive complex that was begun in its renovation in 19 BC, didn't finish until 64 AD, just six years before it would actually be destroyed. And so it's somewhat of a construction project in the day of Christ. 
And yet it's this 172,000 square foot complex with walls that were 80 feet high and 50 feet down into the foundation of the earth. Stones that were as big as 415 tons, 46 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet. You can imagine walking into that complex and being struck by it and moved by it and wanting to gaze upon it. And so this this one person, we don't know exactly who it is, says, wow, this is incredible. I imagine I would say the same. And then Jesus says that the whole place will be destroyed. And so later on, perhaps someone, probably one of his disciples in Mark 13, Matthew 24, we view this as the Olivet Discourse. Probably Jesus has gone out of the city down the Kidron Valley up to Mount Olives where he's been staying and probably one of his disciples makes the next comment in verse seven and they ask Jesus a question. Really, it's two questions. Probably in their mind, it's one as they're thinking about the great day of the Lord and, and, and as they saw history, it was, it was telescopes, so to speak, the way, that you, the way that you look at a great mountain complex and you see one peak and then you see the next peak and you think, oh, they're just next to each other. That's kind of one range, but there's a massive valley between. They're seeing the day of the Lord as one day and Jesus is saying, no, actually, it's two days, the, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and there's a lot of stuff in between. And so they ask a question, which is really two in verse seven, teacher, when will these things take place? When will this destruction of the temple take place? And secondly, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus answers by speaking to two major historical, redemptive historical events that will take place. First, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And secondly, the coming of Christ. One foreshadows the other. One, I think Jesus is saying, is somewhat of a mini event of the other. What you see in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is akin to what you'll see in the second coming of Christ. And what is in their mind a little bit confusing is two different events. And so Squires talked about things to not worry about. False prophets, false messiahs, they'll come and have come. Social tumult, it'll come and has come. Natural disasters, they'll come and have come. You should worry about persecution and yet the Lord Jesus will be with you and give you words to witness. And then he tells in 20 to 24 of the actual destruction of the temple. And it's graphic. It's a picture of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 that God's people who are in covenant with him are to live within stipulations. And if they break that covenant, there will be curses. And the curses will be sieges of their city and death and destruction. And they see it here as Titus surrounds the city and he holds the city in a siege for five months and chaos ensues until they invade and the city is burned and the temple is burned. Jerusalem, verse 24, is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. But Jesus says none of this, though, is the end. This is birth pangs, this is a mini picture, but none of it is actually the end. And then he turns to the actual end in the appearing in verses 25 through 28. And he gives a description that is apocalyptic in nature. It's a genre, it's, it's not parabolic, it's not narrative, it's not poetic, it's not law, it's apocalyptic in nature. And as Dr. Thomas describes it, it's like pictures of a cartoon flashing before your eyes. 
Not meant to be taken literally necessarily, but graphic pictures flashing before your eyes. And again, what we see is natural disaster. The sun, the moon, the stars, the seas, the waves, they're roaring. The nations are afraid and perplexed. The people are fainting. There's foreboding. It's similar actually to what we have read in Isaiah 13. When Babylon overruns Israel, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Apocalyptic descriptions of what John Murray calls cosmic commotions. Or what Jesus has already said in the passage before us, nations rise against nations, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, terrors, great signs in the heavens. And Jesus is saying, so too with the second coming. It's as if the world is coming apart. Why? Why why is it as if the world is coming apart? Because as powerful and terrifying as those events were, as warranted as those events were for the breaking of the covenant of God's people, this event's even more powerful. This event's even more terrifying. This event's even more warranted. This event's even more cosmic because not just Israel has rejected God, but Jesus has appeared to the nations and the nations have despised him and therefore he will come in cosmic judgment upon the nations. And he picks up in verse 27 and says, then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Turn with me just briefly over to Daniel 7. I shouldn't treat Daniel 7 briefly. If you know anything about Daniel, it should not be treated briefly. But actually, it's in your header verse as well. And what Jesus is picking up on is this picture from Daniel 7, this apocalyptic picture there as well. Daniel has just described four beasts, one like a lion with eagle's wings, one like a bear, one like a leopard with four wings, and one with iron teeth. 10 horns and a little horn that sprouts up. They represent the beastly kingdoms of the earth, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek and the Roman empires. But then as if the scene just changes dramatically, as if it shifts, as if the focus needs to stop because something greater has shown up. He says in verse nine of chapter seven, as I look, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. A greater king shows up. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. The ancient of days shows up and these puny little kings are judged. Fire, the book is open. Every one of them will give an account before him. They will be dealt with. And then there's a word or two about the tiny horn we'll go back to in a second. And then verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He's not like a lion. He's not like a beast. He's not like the other kings of the earth. He's like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve or should worship him His dominion is an everlasting dominion, what shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man shows up and he receives the kingdom. All these other puny little kings had kingdoms, 
But when he shows up, it's his time. And in between, in verses 11 and 12, there's the little tiny horn guy who was the king, who was reigning in terror and he was pompous and he's just dealt away with. And Ralph draws out in his commentary that it's almost like even the structure of the text just smushes the puny kings of the earth. They're just squeezed out. Isn't it true that the beastly kings, the pompous kings of the earth with their beastly policies can instill within us such fear? It can seem as if they're reigning over the universe. It can seem as if they're reigning over the United States. They're reigning over Columbia. They're reigning over our schools. They're reigning over our lives until we lift our eyes and what we see is the ancient of days seated on his throne. He's not scared. He's not caught off. Psalm 2 says he laughs at them because they're puny and tiny and actually think they can actually overthrow him and he'll come in judgment. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly in control and he will perfectly judge the nations and he will reign in glory forever and Jesus now you can flip back to Luke Jesus picks up on this description and his favorite way of describing himself in his earthly ministry is the son of man and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory he has come as the son of man he has brought salvation in his wings he's brought blessing to all who look to him in faith but he'll come again And when he does, he'll deliver finally that salvation and that blessing to all who look to him in faith, but he'll also bring judgment and those who did not bow the knee to him will only be able to be judged by him and they'll be destroyed. It's it's as if he's saying, as surely as the Roman Empire surrounded Jerusalem, And those who thought that they could stand, they were strong enough, they were powerful enough, they had the walls that were big enough, they had their own autonomous reason, they were in control, they had their own idols, they didn't need God to deliver them and they certainly didn't need Jesus to warn them to flee the city, they were going to stay put in Jerusalem and just as they did in their own arrogance and they were destroyed, so too those who do not flee to Jesus will be destroyed in that final day. But those who heed Jesus' word, and Eusebius, the first church historian, tells us a story of how people heeded Jesus' word in the passage prior to this, that when they thought the siege was about to come, they fled to the hills and then to a city called Pella, and they lived there, and they were saved. The early church was saved. It was saved because it trusted in Jesus, and it fled at his word that just like those people, all who flee to Christ by faith will be saved on that day. And for us, it will not be a day of destruction. It will not be a day of foreboding. It will not be a day of fear and perplexity. It will be a day of great redemption. Verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What a wonderful promise of Jesus. Your redemption is drawing near in this can't miss all will see it universal event when the cloud rolls back the trumpet sounds and Jesus bursts forth the same way he ascended into the cloud into the presence of God so to speak he will descend and split the clouds and he will come back for us no one will miss it and for the world it means judgment and for Christ's redeemed it means redemption different aspect of redemption here an eschatological aspect of redemption a last things aspect deliverance final deliverance 
from this world into the presence of God forever and ever and ever where he will wipe away our tears and he will reign with us forever. What Jesus is saying is the second coming is sure and it ought to strengthen our resolve as believers. It ought to give us reason for rejoicing as we're closer today than we've ever been before to his appearing. And that's good news for all who love his appearing. So there's an appearing in verses 25 through 28. And then there's a parable in 29 through 33. And what Jesus is saying here is, he's, he's asking the question, how sure can you be that this appearing will take place? And like he often does, he does an object lesson. He's probably up in the Mount of Olives. He's looking at a fig tree that has a delicious fruit that comes forth in its season. And he uses that as an object lesson to tell a parable with a point. He says, Besides the fact that God's word never returns void, besides the fact that Jesus is the word incarnate, besides the fact that the, the event that he's predicted, the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come to pass and has indeed come to pass, besides all those realities, look at the fig. As sure as summer comes, I'm coming back. And for those of us in Columbia, we, we understand the as sure as summer comes part, don't we? That when summer comes, for some of you, that means redemption deliverance from this hot land to your beach house or to your mountain house and for others it means the judgment of hell (laughs) fire upon those who didn't have the means or were too pompous and stayed within the city we understand as sure as the summer is coming perspective and Jesus says well As sure as the leaf blooms on the fig, it means summer's coming. So sure, all these signs point to my coming. I'm coming back as sure as fruit on the fig, as sure as the sun comes up in the morning, as sure as summer in Columbia, I'm coming back for you. And he says that his kingdom then will draw near. He's not talking about the the now kingdom that he's already said is with him and already has drawn near. No, he has brought that in with his reign and rule for all who look to him in faith. They've experienced blessing in a new way. He's talking about the not yet kingdom, the final, the consummated kingdom that will come back with Christ when he returns for us and brings us home to glory. And then there's this tricky bit here in verse 32 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. And you can ask Derek what that means. Uh, No, there's a lot of perspectives on what that means. Does it mean that these disciples will still be here when this happens? Uh, No, because they're not still here and it hasn't happened. And so does that mean Jesus is wrong and Christianity's false? Of course not. Does it mean that all these events, even these events we're talking about here are prior to AD 70 and all of them point to the destruction of the temple? That would be the preterist view. I don't think that makes the most sense of the text or the scripture here. Or is it referring to these things, that this generation will experience all these things, the destruction of the temple, false prophets, social tumult, a national disaster, and they all did in these last days that we entered into when Christ came, on Acts 2 talks about, and Hebrews 1 could mean that. Or does it mean what Dr. Davis mentions, and that is, that uh, the last things or that these, this generation refers to this type of generation, this kind of generation. 
and that could be good or bad but Ralph argues that that seven other times in Luke this generation is used and it always has a twist to it It has a negative context to it it's talking about this wicked and perverse generation and therefore what Jesus is saying is don't worry this will take place as sure as wicked prevails throughout the earth until I come back as sure as as Ralph says it those who have been are and will be light rejecting kingdom opposing Messiah spurning people were are and will be that generation will continue until I come back just like the generation of believers this type of generation will remain until Christ returns but then in the end the wicked will be like chaff driven away Psalm 2 says but the word of God will stand and in the judgment the righteous will stand with Jesus forever you can take it to the bank that's what Jesus is saying there's an appearing there's a parable of assurance and then finally there's an application here in verses 34 to 38 and what Jesus is saying here is we often get sort of diluted into the signs and looking for the end Jesus of course says no one knows the end not even the son and his human mind that is and his divine mind he knows all things but we're not to get caught up in looking for and projecting and predicting the end. Rather, Jesus says, there are pastoral implications for the fact that I'm coming back. And so he says, there are two things to avoid and three things to do until I return. First, avoid dissipation and drunkenness. Don't be weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness. Literally, the picture here is drunkenness and the debauchery that ensues and the hangover after drunkenness. That's the picture. Don't be weighed down by sucking in the pleasures of this world as if that's all you have to live for. Don't suck in alcohol and drunkenness and debauchery and the pleasures of the world as if you're made for this world and that's actually gonna satisfy you. Don't drink that in and don't numb out because the world's hard. Then he says also avoid the cares of this life the anxieties of this life and oftentimes the two go hand in hand don't they that when we're worried about the worries of this life we numb out in some way shape or form it may not be alcohol or drugs or whatever but it could be entertainment and you name it and if this world is not going anywhere and it's not ruled by someone then all we really have is alcohol and anxiety and Jesus says, no, don't let your heart be weighed down by those things. Rather, recognize that the world actually is going somewhere. Don't be so fixated upon and intoxicated with the world by drinking up what it offers or by being consumed by anxiety over your lack of control, even in the midst of your hardship, which Jesus guarantees will actually come, but rather recognize that you're made for another world. And it's literally about to be brought to you. And this one pales in comparison to that one. So don't lose sight of these realities. Don't lose hope of his appearing. Don't lose focus on living for and even suffering for something and someone greater than this world offers. And don't stop witnessing for Christ. Rather, do these three things, he says. Watch yourself. Stay awake and pray for strength. Believers, watch yourself, stay awake and pray for strength because you too can, can, can succumb to these temptations. J.C. Rowell, great 
English bishop of Liverpool said it this way, there's no sin so great but that a great saint may fall into it. And there's no saint so great but that he may fall into a great sin. And so watch. How do we live in these last days? We live as if Christ is actually coming back for us. And he is. We live as if we want to be awake and alert and faithful when he comes. We live as if we need his strength to endure this wicked and perverse generation. And if we pray, he gives generously through the power of his Holy Spirit. He wants to equip us. He wants to give us wisdom for this day. He wants to give us strength for this day. He loves to give to his children. And so we watch ourselves. We stay awake and we pray. The reality is that no, we are not home yet but we're nearer today than we were before. And his coming is as sure as summer in Columbia, as sure as the fig produces fruit, as sure as the word of God is true, as sure as Jesus's predictions are true, so will his appearing be. And so he says to us, straighten up, raise your heads for your redemption is drawing near. thanks be to God let's pray gracious God and most holy heavenly father we we are those who all too often look at this world and get anxious all too often look at the things that you've given us for this world and maybe they're good and for our enjoyment but we are consumed by them overwhelmed by them given into addiction to them because we think we're actually made for this world father lift our eyes Straighten our heads, straighten our backs. Give us steel and resolve to lift our heads and see that our redemption is drawing near and to live in light of that reality that we might watch ourselves stay awake. And would you, by your grace, give us strength in Jesus' name. Amen.